I went at least another 200 feet through the ungroomed course, which was what we call the potato chips or the, or the crunchies, bouncing along, unable to do anything, but finally came to a stop, got my left foot out and could hold the bike up. I had to wait for them to come and pull my foot out of the fairing. Episode 33, Tom Borchard, Motorcycle Land Speed Racing and the Bonneville Salt Flats. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Travis Parsons. Our guest today is Tom Borchard. Born and raised in the eastern U.S., Tom ended up in Colorado where he met his wife and got married. After returning to the East Coast in the early 70s in search of work, they ultimately ended up in Nova Scotia and settled down to call that home. Tom is with us today to talk about motorcycle land speed racing. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Travis, for having me on your show. Well, we're glad to have you. So, Tom, take a few minutes to tell our listeners about yourself and your involvement in motorcycles and land speed racing. Well, you know, uh, my first uh, uh, venture into motorcycles happened when I was about 14 years old, and I built my own motorcycle using a bicycle frame and a lawnmower engine. Um, that project lasted about a week because I tore all the spokes out of the rear wheel. <laughs> so I moved on to a mini bike. And then uh, after that, I, I really didn't have a bike until I went to college. And uh, while at university, my first real motorcycle was a 1961 Matchless. Um, and they, it was called a, uh, and let me get this right. Um, it was a 600cc single cylinder motorcycle that a friend of mine and I bought for $60. Wow. And we had to pull it with a car to get it started the first time. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I ended up buying out my partner and rebuilding that bike and had a heck of a good time running around the campus and doing burnouts and and when I got home to where I uh, called home in uh, Delaware a, on a farm, um, I rode that bike around a, uh, about a one-acre uh, field we had, and uh, that's where I really learned to handle a motorcycle. Um, the old Matchless, in spite of being over 400 pounds, um, was it handled very well, and I really learned to to go you know, go around corners with it. Otherwise, and that's the that's the place you should learn in the dirt. So that was my first uh, motorcycle, my first real one. My second one, um, I sold that one, and I bought a, a BSA 441 Victor Special. And I had that bike um, until after we were married um, and moved to Nova – well, it was before I moved to Nova Scotia. But I sold that bike, you know, to do the family thing, really. Right. However, um, and I, I should mention uh, that in 1970, before I got married, a year before I got married, um, I was working for the DuPont Company, and the Vietnam War was still in progress, and I had 
uh, a deferred job, uh, essential industries deferred job. And they came out with a, a system of, uh, of drafting uh, young men uh, that was based on your birth date. And my birth date came out 331st in the draw, which by all means meant I was never going to get drafted. And the war was almost over anyway. I went uh, – I immediately joined two of my friends. We we went to Europe where we – the three of us bought brand-new BSAs and we traveled 10,000 miles that summer all over Europe, down into Africa and through most of the European uh, countries. Um, that bike got shipped back to the U.S. and subsequently I, I moved to Colorado. Then I met my, my uh, wife got married, moved back east, and sold the bikes uh, to do the family thing. Moved to Nova Scotia in 1973. Um, I had a, uh, at the time I did have a, a Yamaha DT1, which is a 250cc, uh, what we would, it was called an Enduro, and I actually raced a couple of Enduros with it and uh, had some fun. But when I moved to Nova Scotia, I only ended up riding it about once. Got rid of that. Um, and didn't have uh, really get back into motorcycles until um, about the year 1998 or so. And what happened then was, well, my kids had left home, um, and I just told myself, I'm going to get back into motorcycles. Went out and bought myself a 1996 Ducati SS 900 uh, Super Sport. That's a heck of a way to get back into it. Yes, it is. And uh, I immediately uh, uh, went to track school, took it up, went to track school. Um, and uh, I thought, well, I know how to ride a motorcycle. So I immediately jumped into the medi- to the medium class. You know, they had uh, slow, fast and slow, medium and fast. And right. I thought, well, I don't, I don't need to go in the slow group. <laughs> well, I had a real awakening trying to keep up to the back of the middle group. But I did pass that course. Um, what really got me interested in the racing was that a lot of my instructors at the uh, – and this was in Shubenacadie, Nova Scotia, by the way. Um, most, a lot of my instructors were riding vintage road racing bikes that they had built themselves. And this really appealed to me. So upon finishing that course, I came back to my home in Yarmouth, near Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, bought a, a Honda CB350, 1972, turned it into a race bike, went back and took the track school again in the spring and started racing the very next year. So that's how I got into racing and also rebuilding of the vintage bikes for racing. Wow, that's quite a story. I love the stories when people are, you know, get into it as little kids on mini bikes, and especially you, you know, you guys end up or you end up building one and and uh, well, essentially wrecking that or destroying it, you know, to an extent, and then go out and find some uh, some bike that you have to to pull with a car to get pup started and and get to work on that. But what a what a young education to learn how to to work on your your machines back then, and it really launches a, a neat hobby for you. Yeah, and you know, um, and we don't, I don't, we don't seem to see as much of it today. But uh, back then, I had a brother that was into drag racing, and I had a, another brother, both older, um, that uh, we got into cars, building hot rods, 
and things like that before I really got into the motorcycles. But um, I probably had a wrench in my hand from the time I was, you know, 12 years old, taking apart the family lawnmower um, for the rest of my life. I've had wrenches, you know, and, and I've always been a wrencher. Um, it's just part of me. Um, and I, I uh, think that's what's driven me to, to continue with this uh, very interesting sport. Yeah, absolutely. I was, when I had my mini mini bikes, three wheelers, whatnot, when I was a kid, it was always up to me to learn how to fix them. You know, my dad said, you, you have tools, there they are, go at it. You know, if you want that thing to run again, you're going to learn how to fix it. And it's kind of frustrating as a kid to some extent, because you just want to get out there and ride the darn thing. You don't want to be wrenching on it, you know, all the time, but it taught me a lot. You know, it, it taught me how to work on my own vehicles. And there's a lot of times when I have to work on my own vehicles and I don't want to, but at the same time, I know how to do it. Um, and I'm doing the same thing these days. I have a 10 year old son that has a, a little Kawasaki and I make him come out there. And when we're changing the oil, he gets in there and gets his hands dirty and learns how to change the oil, learns how to adjust that chain. And I think you're right. I don't think it happens enough these days. Uh, kids really need to get some tools in their hands and learn some, some tricks of the trade. So you're here today to talk about land speed racing, um, but I think you've done more racing other than just land speed racing. Why would you encourage people to get into one or the other? Well, in most forms of uh, motorcycle racing, in fact, uh, most forms of car racing, any any uh, automotive sport, um, I think that that's the kind of thing that, you know, nearly every guy that I know of anyway really likes to do, would like, would like to do. Um, but it can be quite intimidating. Now I got into vintage road racing, which was, you know, our bikes, our little CB 350 Hondas and my BSA B50. I mean, you know, 100 mile an hour is pretty well top end and on the racetrack, it's probably more like, 80 or 90. In fact, I, I think my average speed on the 1.9 road race course was around 65 miles an hour. Even that can be intimidating. I've had get-offs. I've broken bones. Um, and as we, uh, you know, mature maybe, um, it's just not as uh, um, tempting to go full throttle into a corner and lean the bike over and try to keep ahead of the guy next to you uh it sort of loses appeal after you've broken a few bones and slid down the asphalt <laughs> and round right. holes in your leathers and and ruined helmets and um so the land speed racing is uh a lot less intimidating uh for a few reasons one of which is that nearly everybody in the sport um will will come to your aid they're always right next to you saying how did you do this and you know do you built your own bike and how did you you know you know get this to work and they they're willing to to tell you everything they know about uh building um um a, a vehicle for land speed racing i didn't find that to be the case in road racing um if you got into um classes uh, that were a little more sophisticated. Uh, people seem to be a little more close-mouthed, like, you know, I don't want to tell you my secrets type of thing. So first right. of all, in land speed racing, everybody shares their ideas. Um, and we, of course, go in a straight line, 
and it's one racer at a time. You know, you can go as fast as you want, but you can, you know, if you if you feel you're not quite in control, you just slow down a little. There's nobody next to you. You don't have to beat the next guy. You're racing for a time. Uh, you're racing against yourself. Uh, and uh, if you happen to be uh, the best in your particular class, you know, so be it. That's that's great. That's the uh, the carrot at the end of the stick, you know, to be able to come back and say, well, I've, I've set a record. Um, there are also um, hundreds of different classes. So, you know, if you want to ride a 100cc motorcycle, um, you can do that. And if you have a uh, there are different types of motors. There's two-stroke motors and there's overhead cam and there's pushrod motors. And, and if you know anything about motors, the pushrod motors are a little slower. And that's the class that I compete in. And I don't have to compete. My 500cc motorcycle doesn't have to compete against a 500cc four-cylinder overhead cam crotch rocket. Right. Makes sense. Uh, so... Uh, I get to pick my class, get to pick what I want to do to the motor. Um, and the main thing with land speed racing is the regulations, uh, and there are quite a few of them, are mainly based on safety. They want to make sure that everybody is safe. You have to have um, a full racing suit, back protector, latest uh, um, approved helmet, boots, gloves, uh um, all the protective gear that's available has to be up to date and and it has to be in good condition um, uh, so uh, and your bikes uh, uh, or cars if you prefer to get into cars there's a lot of safety regulations on the bikes are a little easier but your your forks your your axles your fork nuts uh, have to be safety wired your battery has to be held down properly your fuel lines have to be protected against fire you have to have a lanyard that if you're if you fall off the bike will shut off your motor uh everything is geared toward uh, safety of the rider and as a result there are really very few accidents um in land speed racing so it's a it's a great sport for those uh, who are really interested motorheads interested in building and riding uh motorcycles or cars, and if you um, are the type that likes to innovate, uh, the sky's the limit in what you can do as long as it's safe. So it's a real open sport in that regard. Well, that sounds awesome. So like you said, somebody doesn't want to go uh, ripping around a, an asphalt or dirt track with a whole bunch of other bikes. They're just more in it for the competition with themselves or competition with the clock, then they can go out and try this. And like you said, the safety aspects are, are vast. It sounds like a, a great way to, to start out. I never would have thought about the lanyard on a motorcycle, but it makes a lot of sense when you're racing straight line like that, that you could pop off of that thing somehow. And all of a sudden the bike is just turned loose going straight. You get a bike on a track and you pop off of it and it's going to hit a wall or some sort of barrier at some point in time, you know, they wouldn't put lanyards there, but that's a, that's a good point. That's interesting. So tell us about the course. I've never set foot out there. I've never even stood on the salt flats. How um, Explain the course as you enter off I-80. What is it like when you pull up to the salt flats and how is it laid out? Paint that picture a little bit. Oh, it's it's really amazing. Uh, you pull off I-80 at what, and you see the sign that says Bonneville Salt Flats and you you think you're there. Well, you've still got at least 
I'd say five miles of paved road and the paved road comes to the end and we call that the boat landing uh, <laughs> because uh, that is where the lake is, the, the Bonneville Saw Lake. Right. And in the, in the spring and after uh, heavy rains, the entire salt flats are flooded. Um, but what that does is when the, when the, when the rainwater evaporates, it leaves the salt dead flat and hard. The only thing that is, is a little bit of a nuisance is there's uh, little bumps all over the salt. So, uh, anyway, when you get off the pavement and you go onto the salt, you have another five miles to drive on the salt before you get to where we race. Um, and the, the pits are set up all along, usually from about mile one to mile three. It's all pits all along the course. Okay. The course itself, there are anywhere from two to four courses, depending on uh, which event you go to. Um, but there's, there's always a short course and a long course. Now, the short course at Bonneville is five miles long. So the short it's not course very, is? The short course is five miles long. Really? And uh, the long course can be up to 11 miles long. Wow. You're only timed over the center portion of that, the, fr- the center mile. So the slower motorcycles are, you are asked, and it's not demanded, but are asked to start at mile one, proceed, and you accelerate to mile two, where you're timed from mile two to mile three. Now, if, you're, if your motorcycle is capable of going over 125 miles an hour, you can start at mile zero. And, it, and the, same, the, the only difference is you have two miles then to get up to speeds because the timed area is always between two and three. Right, okay. So, um, and I've, you know, I've been up to 150 miles an hour now, and I can tell you I can slow down easily by mile four, but if I – you know, for some guys that are going 200 miles an hour, they have to mile five to slow down and get off the course. You exit to the left and come back a return road. Now, if you've exceeded the, if you have exceeded the existing record in your course at this point in your class, you go to tech, go to the impound. They will check your timing slip. You pick up your timing slip. And if you have exceeded the record in your class, you will be allowed to go down to the other end of the course and as soon as you want to and make a return run. So at this point, I go down to, to, to mile five and, and come back. And I'm again, I'm timed between three and two. So it's a it's an average speed that you're timed over uh you're you're timed over the mile the two to three mile, then you have to make a return run over the three to two back to two, and it's the average of those two speeds that is recorded, and that's uh, must you must exceed the existing record. So you, your motorcycle not only has to perform well, it has to have longevity to, to run. I mean, you're running almost 10 miles at, at full throttle, you know, so it's, it's, right. a real, it's a real thrill to do that. And the salt flats themselves, of course, they're dead flat. All you have are little red flags at about, I think they're about 90 feet apart, that, you're, that marks your course. And every mile, there's a, a mile marker. So that's what you're you're just you're just cruising along as you can go as fast as you want. 
Keep it between the flags. So you have to do it Keep twice. It between the flags. Yes. And both runs have to exceed the record if you're going to do it, but they do take an average of the two, correct? They take the average of the two. So if the average, you know, you have to exceed it on the down run uh, before they you get a, a chance to even make your return run, and the average has to be above the record. And do they do the return run because of wind conditions and whatnot instead of just having you run it twice the same direction? Yes, uh, there are t- there are different events, and I raced with the Bonneville Motorcycle Speed Trials Association, formerly uh, BUB Bub. Um, and at our event, we have to make it's which is AMA sanctioned, by the way. We have to make uh, a down run, and then we have to make a return run. Um, I think in SCTA, they, they they have to make two passes as well, but I'm not sure they make it in the return direction. Gotcha. Um, I, I, I've never been to an SCTA event, so I don't know the answer to that. In any case, it is uh, an average over the mile, and it is considered a two-way run, yes. sell nearly everything they own, then pack up and travel for three years around the world alone on a motorcycle. Alan Carl did. Pick up his new book, Forks, A Quest for Culture, Cuisine, and Connection, an adventure that will awaken your senses and inspire your spirit. Explore 35 countries on five continents with stories of connection and culture, more than 700 stunning photos, flavors, and food. Visit ForksTheBook.com to get your copy now. Never run out of camp stove fuel again. The 180 stove is a natural fuel stove that eliminates the need to carry heavy, bulky fuel canisters. With a generous 6-inch by 7-inch cooking surface, it folds away into a clean, compact, self-forming case that is small enough to fit inside your pocket. At only 10.4 ounces, the additional weight and space savings allows for other important items in your pack. Get more information at 180tac.com and look for it in retailers near you as well as online. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Will you help us spread the word about the show? First, tell your friends to give us a listen. You can also help us out by taking a minute and going into iTunes to subscribe, then rate and leave us a review. Thanks for being a part of our show. I was thinking, I imagine the it gets pretty messy. You got salty dust that you end up with all over, all in your, your bearings and, and wheels. It's got to be quite a, a hassle to clean all that out after. I mean, you, you must really want to do this in order to, to have to deal with that on the backside. That's true. <laughs> um, it's not so much a dust. Um, you know, they do some land speed racing at uh, Dry Lake in uh, California called Lake, um, El Mirage. And I believe that is basically hard mud flats that, that, that harden up. But at uh, Bonneville, the salt never really produces a dust. Oh, really? Um, no. But it does, depending on the conditions, if it's wet, it will stick to everything, stick to your shoes. Your tires will throw it up onto the onto the bike, inside your fenders. It will, and it does. It will ruin everything. When you get back from Bonneville, you basically have to disassemble the motorcycle. You have to take uh, the wheels apart. Usually, you have to put new wheel bearings in um, every year, but they're cheap. Right. Um, 
the chain in particular, if you do, if you don't pay any attention to your chain, it will be a solid uh, piece of metal uh, by the following year. You won't be able to move it. So you have to take it off, wash it in soap and water as well as solvents to get the oil off of it. And you have to pack it in a plastic bag full of oil to keep it for the next year if you want to use that chain over again. Yeah, I would imagine having grown up on the East Coast, uh, it was just salty winters and you know whatnot. They would just wreak havoc with anything metal, and you know we'd be out there obviously with cars or any motorcycles or anything, and it would just be a mess. You constantly having to rinse them off for that reason. Um, how about a story about a time when things didn't go so well? We get into these adventure sports to have fun, and uh, and part of them, part of the adventure is when things go unplanned. How about a good story about that? Well, I, I have one good story, I think, uh, and I think it was about the third or the fourth year I was at the Salt Flats, um, and uh, I had set a record the previous year, so I was going after my own record, but I had a, a really had a, a good fairing made for the bike, and which added a, a lot of speed. So I made a down run and exceeded my own record, um, and I think the down run was around 134 miles per hour at the time which qualified me to make a return run. So I got to go down the other end of the track and come back on a return run. About halfway through the return run, the carburetor fell off. So, <laughs> so of course, the carburetor falls off. It didn't actually fall off, you know, on the ground or anything. It was held on with the cable and, the, the you know, the bike just kind of stops, you know, and actually burbled into a rest stop. But, you know, it blew my record. So when that happens, you have to make another down run in order to qualify for a return run. So we went out and another, we went another one this time. I think we went 100 and, well, I think it was around 135 miles per hour, really good down run on about 118 mile an hour record. So it was a really good oh, wow. run. So back down to the five mile to make a return run and the wind was starting to pick up and I've got full fairings on this bike. So it's kind of sensitive to the wind. And I took off not really realizing that where I was between the flags. And I went through the flying kilometer, which is there's actually a timed kilometer in the middle of the course. And I went through that and got a time of 137 miles per hour. But I was getting close to the right edge of the course, and I tried to correct. And I kept trying to correct. The next set of flags that came up were the, were the two-mile, which was where the timing lights were, dead ahead and oh i ran right through the flags took out one of the flagpoles which was a piece of uh three-quarter inch pvc pipe and um luckily i didn't crash just a little bit of a veer but when i got down to the other end and of course i didn't get a time for my run because i had gone to the right hand side of the timing oh, no. <laughs> so, <Few inches. laughs> so when i came to a stop I had I had an air intake on the front of that bike, um, and it had it had picked the, it had cut that flagpole off, and I still have about a dozen pieces of that flagpole in my collection that reminds me of things not to do. Yeah, <laughs> those are souvenirs you're not really supposed to gather. <laughs> so we so we actually had to go and make another down run, qualify a third time for the record, and the and the and then go down and make another re, uh, return run. We had to make a down run and a return run, and we got the record on that one at 134 miles per hour. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So did, they didn't kick you off the course, you know, because you keep beating things up? Well, I was very lucky that 
I actually went about a foot to the right of the timing lights. And we went out at the end of the day and actually took photographs of it. And you could see my tire marks going through the flagpole, which was the flag was just hanging by one of the two (laughs) poles. And you could see my tire marks no more than 12 inches from the timing lights. So if I would have taken out the timing lights, I think they would have made me pay for them. But I was lucky. And uh, I was lucky not to crash, to tell you the truth, because at 137 miles per hour, when you hit something, you know, it's not good. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, if you hit those, t- those lights at 137 miles an hour, you probably got a lot more to worry about than that. Uh, I would have. I would have had more to worry about than that. Uh, but as it were, just a, a three-quarter inch PVC uh, tube, it cut that right off. But I did my fairing. The, the windshield on the fairing, it popped half of the screws out of the, the windshield um, and took some of the fiberglass off of the fairing. But luckily, I was within the fairing, and I didn't get hurt continued on and uh, you know that's why i'm here to tell you today i'm here to talk to you yeah we're happy about that so is 137 your top speed then not i know you said you've gone faster on a motorcycle but as far as record set that was it uh no not actually um uh, i came back the following year and i uh, made a few changes to the bike a few changes to the motor and this was in the 500 cc push rod um gas class and um, I came back the following year, as I said, and went 143 miles per hour. Oh, there you go. So my record in um, the uh, partially streamlined 500cc push ride class is 143 miles per hour, set two years ago, and that still stands. And then for 2014, I uh, bumped the motor size up to 600ccs, um, which put me in the 650 class. And uh, last year, in spite of the fact that we had really poor conditions, we had a lot of water, we only got a few runs in, I managed to set the 650 record at 150 miles per hour. Actually, 149.9 is the the actual record, so… Close enough, right? Close enough to 150. (laughs) I'm going to call it 150. I'll allow you to do that. I'm not going to argue. That's great. So how would you say land speed racing is a benefit to others? Well, you know, I, I think the biggest benefit is for all, all of us sort of retired racers uh, from all walks of life that there is still something left that we can do. There are people – there's a, one individual from Denver actually, uh, uh, a gentleman who's uh, in his late 70s, and he's still racing at Bonneville. So – you know, you, you probably wouldn't go road racing in your late seventies, but you can still go to Bonneville and and uh, and go there and uh, race. Actually, uh, they also have a class which I'd like to mention called Run What You Brung. And in the Run What You Brung class, you still have to have your leathers, you still have to have your axle bolts uh, safety wired, and and you have to go through the safety procedures, but. You don't even have to register in any specific class. You just go down there, and, you, and for the money you pay, which I think is around $250 now, you get to make two runs down this salt course to go as fast as you want. So you can take your regular street bike out there. You're, you're making sure you have good leathers and a, and a recent Snell 2010 rated helmet. I guess that's very important. Um, you can take your bike out there and, and go for a, a, a run down the track, but don't forget to clean it up when you come back because it'll rust on you. 
Yeah, no doubt. Well, I was going to ask you about that. If it was a setup that any any old Joe could just show up with their vehicle and run. So it sounds like they can, but it is a controlled situation where you know you do have to go you know through a little bit of tech and obviously have the right equipment and pay your dues. And, and there's a lot of tech, um, and you know we motorcycle racers um, have it pretty easy. We it's mainly the clothing and the safety wiring and the uh, the lanyard that I spoke of, uh, car tech is much more involved, uh, roll bars, your frame, you know, everything about the car has to be inspected. So we have it easier. Um, you know, most sport bikes of course are, are, uh, pretty, pretty well built anyway. But if you show up with a homemade, uh, bicycle frame with a lawnmower engine on it, it's not going to pass. <laughs> That's not getting through tech. It's not getting through tech. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to, you can have an older bike. And in fact, there's uh, been a new class established that's called uh, classic motorcycles um, for motorcycles uh, before 1980 or 1980 and before. And there's a whole new set of records. So there's this, what's really nice about this is there, all these old, you know, records have been set in most of the classes, and some of them are pretty tough records. So now you've got a whole other uh, field opening up to people with 1980 and earlier bikes that don't have to compete with modern crotch rockets and, um, you know, the fast bikes that we have today. It has to be pre-1980. So a lot of people are getting into it. Another whole other group of people are getting into it for the classics. Right. You know, so I was looking at some of your pictures uh, of your BSA. Um, the the frame, the wheelbase on it is quite long for obvious reasons. What kind of um, what kind of restraints or stipulations do they put on you other than that engine? How different can the bike be, or can it not be? Well, there are three basic uh, body classes in motorcycles. There's uh, production, which, as you can imagine, is a, a production motorcycle as it came off of the showroom floor. You can do anything you want to the motor, but the, the, the bike has to have all of its equipment. It still has to have lights on it. Um, now, the, then if you modify it in any way, such as a road racing bike, it will run in uh, the modified uh, class, which is called M-Class. And in M-Class, you can make some changes, but you can't make uh, big changes to the frame, cut the frame down. You can't have your seat below the rear wheel, for example. You c- There's some restrictions there. Um, and uh, as I said, the closest analogy I can make, it would be to uh, your typical road race class, road racers. You know, take off your lights, take off your your turn signals, strip it down, uh, get get yourself low, you know, lower it a bit as long as you don't change the wheelbase by more than 10%. Now, the class I run is uh, called A-Class, and uh, it's also called Special Build. Just about anything is legal in Special Build. There have been, you know, there are lay-down bikes. Mine's sort of a lay-down bike, semi-lay-down bike. I'm laying down mostly on my stomach. I've got a 72-inch wheelbase, which is over a foot longer than stock. I completely beat, built the tubular frame myself. I'm looking through the headstock rather than above it, which gets me down, you know, probably uh, eight inches to a foot lower than any any street bike. I can do anything I want to the frame. I can do anything I want to the motor as long as it 
it meets the uh, capacity of 500 cc or 650, whichever class you run in. You know, it could be 125. There's a there's a 100 cc class. There's 125, 175, 250, 350. Just keeps going. Um, and you do have to, if you set a record, you do have to tear your motor down, and they will measure the record. They will measure your motor, the bore and the stroke. That's the only restrictions in the A class. Where in production, you can imagine, you can't change the carburetor. You know, you can't change fuel injection. You can't change anything. So, because of these three different classes, you can make about as many changes as you can think of. Innovation, sky's the limit. Well, that's very cool. It seems like an awesome thing to do, and uh, I can imagine myself getting out there. And uh, after I'm tired of running the the bikes around the regular roads and go take on the salt flats and try my hand at that. That seems pretty neat. Don't forget to go to adventuresportspodcast.com and look for that click to call button on the left-hand side of the screen. Click that, you punch your number in, and you'll be automatically connected with our voicemail service, which will allow you to leave a message and tell us about your awesome story about your amazing adventure. We want to hear your stories. Give us a call, guys. Thanks. Hey, guys. If you enjoy the motorcycle episodes that we do on the Adventure Sports Podcast, I want you to go check out the Pace Motorcycle Podcast. James and Chris do a great job each week of discussing all kinds of motorcycle topics as well as the current events. Give the Pace Motorcycle Podcast a listen. It's one of my personal favorites. Hi, this is Joe Ross from South Africa, and you're listening to Adventure Sports Podcast. Okay, so before I let you go, I have two things. One, how can people who are uh, searching for more information on land speed racing as well as the Bonneville Salt Flats, where can they get more information? Uh, The main site you can go to to get information on land speed racing is called landracing.com. And it covers every aspect of land racing, you know, land speed racing. Uh, and I should mention that uh, the Bonneville Salt Flats are not the only place you can go land speed racing. I go, for example, to Loring, Maine, to the old uh, B-52 bomber base up there. That's, I mean, if you run off the end of the runway, you're in Canada. That's how far north it is. <laughs> yeah, they've warned us about that. But the, it's an old uh, asphalt or uh, paved runway, I mean, concrete runway that is um, about two and a half miles long. So we get on that course, we get timed at the mile and the mile and a half. Um, and it's a one way record and there's, you know, you don't have to back it up. You don't have to tear your motor apart. There are other, uh, courses. There's one in, uh, Wilmington, Ohio that has several events a year. Um, all these are, are sub, uh, divisions of the landracing.com. Um, and, uh, the, Motorcycle uh, organization with which I race, it's uh, sanctioned by AMA, it's called the Bonneville Motorcycle Speed Trials. So there's another website you can go to that will tell you when the events are. Um, And the other main one is called the Southern California Timing Association. And they run speed weeks that are in mid-August that that, uh, 
um, cover everything from cars to bikes to streamliners. Um, so those those sites will will get you information um, that you may uh, be interested in. Okay, good. We'll put those in the show notes of the podcast in case anybody wants to look that up and get a little bit more detail on it. So the last question, if you have one, is there a funny story that you can uh, leave our listeners with a smile on their face? You know, there's a couple of times that uh, minor things like, of course, I told you when the carburetor fell off, but another time um, I uh, let off the throttle um, only to realize that I was in the middle of the time mile and not at the end of it. I mean, you wait in line for over an hour to make a run and you've got, you know, you've got a backup crew in my case uh, one one pit man and and some friends so they're all you know waiting you know to see how you do and when you do something stupid like uh, like that it's it's uh, it's a bit embarrassing and you have to get back in line <laughs> and, you know and it takes uh, so you so you get back in line and you have another hour to wait well um in one incident that was uh, uh, uh kind of funny I I had finished my uh uh, my time mile and uh, you know I, I don't know how well I described the bike to you but it's a lay down bike it's a foot longer than most bikes and I have my feet tucked in very close behind me and under me to, for aerodynamics and it's difficult to shift so I shift uh, GP style if you're familiar with that that means one up for first gear and then down 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 right yep um, and that's uh, because I can't articulate my foot very well. So on this one particular run, and with the bodywork being about two inches off the ground, I elected to go all the way to the five mile to get off because the the turnout was uh, was smoother that year. Um, but I didn't want to hold up people behind me, so I, you keep the throttle on, and you, you know you're kind of cruising along at a hundred miles an hour. It's kind of kind of fun, you know. Uh, you're like you're on a Sunday drive with no cops around. Yeah, at that point, it's kind of slow feeling compared to what you just did, right? Yeah, yeah. You're, you know, you've let off the throttle, and you're, you know, you're kind of slowing down. But then when you see the canopy at the at the five mile coming up, and there's a couple of of uh, fellows volunteers there, the the track marshals, and then you, you know, it's time to slow down. And at this point, I'm trying to downshift, and I, I, it's it's difficult to downshift. And the way I have to do it is I have to stick my foot underneath the lever and pull it up. Well, I managed to to get in some kind of false neutral, and at the same time, I got my foot stuck behind, the, underneath the lever, and inside the uh, fairing, and I couldn't move my right foot. It's right foot <laughs> oh, so no. it was stuck there. And just before we made the run, we'd made a sprocket change. Well, when I went for the brake, I had no brakes because we had forgot to adjust the brakes. So here I am, you know. Slowing down 60, 50, 40 miles an hour maybe, and the canopy in the end of the course is coming up. I mean, I have no way to slow down. So I blow through the five-mile. The the marshals, of course, are, you know, looking at me like I'm some kind of crazy man. Right. And I went at least another 200 feet through the ungroomed course, which was what we call the potato chips or the or the crunchies, bouncing along, unable to do anything, but finally came to a stop got my left foot out and could hold the bike up. And I had to wait for them to come and pull my foot out of the fairing. So it was kind of an embarrassing, but, you know, maybe it's kind of funny to others. Um, but, you know, things like that happen. Wow, that is hairy. 
Yeah, you know, from then on, you make sure that your brake is adjusted, for example, before you get on the track. Yeah, I'll bet it's really easy to uh, forget a few of those things. You have so many things running through your head, and you can forget something pretty important like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, brakes are just to slow you down. Who wants to slow down, you know? So you don't worry about your brakes. And we only have one brake. We only have a rear brake. A front brake is not required. Okay. So, and I use a hand-operated rear brake. I have a, a long cable from the from the handlebar, and it's it's a weak, it's a pretty weak uh, uh, drum brake uh, to begin with. So, yeah, it, it's enough to slow me down to get into the pits. And you know, uh, um, if somebody ran out in front of me, I think they'd be toast. But uh, normally, it uh, slows me down enough. But in that particular time, of course, I had no brakes at all. So um, that's about the. You know, that's about it, I guess, Travis. That's great, man. That's uh, it's a good thing you're not riding these bikes in traffic and you have a, a long runway to get them slowed down. Yes, I wouldn't be riding this bike in traffic. Believe me. <laughs> Believe me. That's great. <laughs> well, Tom, thanks so much for giving us your time on the podcast, and I hope some folks will visit those sites and learn a little bit more about land speed racing. Yes, thank you, Travis. All right. Take care. Bye for now. Would you like to be a guest on our show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us. And don't forget to find the click to call button on the Adventure Sports Podcast website and tell us your awesome story about your amazing adventure. And don't worry, the voicemail is fully automated. You won't be talking to any humans.